Welcome to today's episode of The Square, a curious conversation with Dr. Kwesi Daniels. There have been ice storms, there have been power outages, it has been crazy in Texas, um, but we're glad to be back in the studio to have this conversation with Dr. Daniels, who is the head of architecture at Tuskegee University. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Daniels. Thank you for having me. Now, you guys got a little bit of snow too, right? You got some ice? Uh, Montgomery did not. We, you know, for oh, okay. once we were spared from everything, all the other calamities that the rest of the world had. So while the rest of the world nice. was coming to an end, we were, we were, <laughs> we were relaxing with, uh, you guys were doing good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. You know, uh, February being uh, black history month, you know, we, we, it, it gave us the opportunity to have, I think a really, um, both engaging, but maybe necessary conversation. Um, about design, um, maybe some of our unintentional biases, um, uh, just uh, kind of diving in. But but to start off, as we usually start off our curious conversations, um, I just I want to understand a little bit about why you're in architecture. Of all the different things you could do, both your parents are attorneys. You know why? What drew you to architecture? Um, interesting enough, my my mother gave me a book when I was a kid. It was A through Z of uh, professions, and the first one was architect, second was botanist, <laughs> and the last was zoologist. So I couldn't pronounce architect, you know, so I said it must be something hard, so I want that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, we're going to talk a little bit, a bit about teachers and recruitment a little bit later, but I'm curious, is there a teacher that stands out in your mind um, as someone that you know, maybe encouraged or, or um, uh, motivated you in this area? Um, maybe not in this particular area. In terms of uh, teachers, I'd probably say my grandmother. Uh, although mm. most of my family are, are professionals, they also are teachers. You know, my mother has been teaching in a program that my family started um, since 1985. Uh, my grandmother was a master teacher and so my fondest memories are being told to do it over, um, which for architects, <laughs> you know, the, the red line is not, is something I, I guess I, was, I learned from a very early age. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little about recruitment. You know, uh, you've, you've had some TED Talks, you've written a, on the subject. Um, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that there's a really important reason for kids, even at a young age, to be able to see, they, they want to be like the people that they see. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, you know, you, you, you imitate that which you see. You know, you think about children who decide they want to go into the movies because they saw their favorite star on television or athletes you know you see children wanting to be just like mike um you know these yeah. you know we we sell paraphernalia of our favorite you know uh, stars all because we understand of the the value of the image and so when you're looking at recruitment and, and looking for ways to increase uh, students in certain areas you know whether it's uh, you know, architecture or other professions the more you see that look like you, the more you can see that as a possibility for yourselves. You know, I think President Obama was one of the best examples. I was listening to an NPR statement 
segment, and there was a young man, the mother was saying how she asked him what he wanted to be, and he said he wanted to be the president of the United States. Um, and yeah. this is when you yeah. know, President Obama first ran. So, you know, imagery is important. Is there a reason why the period when someone is a student, uh, I, I read, I, I think it was from you, that uh, kids spend something like 16,000 hours, you know, as a student. Is there a reason that's the best place to kind of capture them and, and to to kind of inspire them to be, you know, something that they may or may not have seen before? Definitely. Uh, you know, that, that, that quote was uh, an acknowledgement that for our children, and all of us, if we're in school, particularly in America with our public education system, we're with, we're with children from kindergarten all the way through high school. And so if you're in school from 8 o'clock to 2 o'clock, that is the bulk of the day. From 2 to 5, you might, you know, mm -hmm. whether you're, if you're at home or if you're doing activities, those people who are engaging with children are going to have the greatest influence. So parents aren't the ones having the greatest influence. You know, we like to think so. But unless you're homeschooling yeah. your children, uh, somebody else has a lot more influence over them than you do. So in that instance, the role of the teacher is, is really important. Uh, it's, it's, it's paramount. You know, uh, the, the teacher, you know, tells the child what to do, you know, for those five, six, seven hours. And then the coach tells the kid, you know, the child what to do. Uh, and so if you then come home, mother and father have, uh, you know, two hours or three hours of time to then instill in their children what to do, hopefully. Um, and, you know, so if we're watching television, then, you know, now we've also decreased yeah. the amount of influence that parents have. So uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the way that our, our society is now structured where parents are out and, and working and so, so many other people are, give, are placing influence on their children. So, you know, that's, that's an ideal time to connect with them. Have you seen the role of the teacher change? I have. So, you know, being in higher ed, uh, you know, since 2003, 2004, and seeing how technology has started to impact us the way it does now, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of COVID where before the idea that we would be able to have conversations over the internet and teach classes over the internet, I'm, I teach in architecture. This was like, you know, no man's land. No, you cannot go yeah. teach over the internet. You know, there's some things you can do, but studio, that's not going to happen. Um, and so we've been teaching studio online. Well, that means that for what I found is that growing up, and even in my first started, the person who knew the most information about any topic was the professor. The mm -hmm. computer, you know, the internet was not as prolific. Um, now, I say, you know, the sky is blue. You don't have to go outside to check. You can go online and Google, you know, hey, <laughs> is the sky really blue today? You know, you know, or Siri. So. Um, it, it, it forces us to be, a, you know, to meet our students differently. It's, you know, to be that resource, that person pointing them in the right direction versus believing that we're the person who knows everything. So today, 
I saw a stat that said basically 2% of registered ar architects are African-American, and of those, of that 2%, only a fraction are female. But you guys have a, a strong heritage of um, architecture at Tuskegee University, which is an HBCU or historically black college university. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, Tuskegee is where black architects cut their teeth. You know, we've always been an apprenticeship profession. And so that means that you have your education and then you have to do the work in order to understand what it means to practice. So for many of the first African-American architects in the country, with Robert R. Taylor being the first uh, graduate of MIT, which also was the first program in the country to teach architecture, he came to Tuskegee in 1893. And for a course of approximately 30 years, he and a number of African-American architects like Walter T. Bailey and Wallace Rayfield, uh, Vert Natandi, you know, they, tr they studied at other institutions um, and they came to Tuskegee to learn how to do the work. And Tuskegee mm -hmm. has a distinction uh, that actually resulted in us being elevated to a National Historic Landmark, is that our students actually designed and made the bricks, designed the buildings, you know, built the mm -hmm. buildings. Uh, so for a black architect, you learn project management, you learn materiality, <laughs> you know, material science, you know, drawing, um, you know, you perfected your craft and from there you were able to go out and set, set the tone for your career. It takes it out of the realm of theory and very practically puts those skills into use. So, so let me ask you this, you know, with, why is the distinction or the classification of being an HBCU important? That distinction is important because when we look at the field of architecture, uh, where African-Americans are marginalized in terms of population, it's a space where you come to an HBCU, you can learn who you are. You know, there's no other space that I've, that I've been at. I've, you know, clearly I've studied at you know, many of the top institutions in the country, and no one ever talked to me about African-American architects. Uh, none of them, you know, there was a young lady who did an exhibit uh, because her teacher told her that African-Americans had never made any contribution to the field of architecture. Well, that's not a conversation you're going to hear, uh, especially not at Tuskegee. And yeah. being at Tuskegee and knowing that you're walking in a, along a campus that was designed by an African-American architect, it's significant because if we think about the the canons of Western architecture. Uh, Mies van der Rohe is considered one of the highlights of, of, that, of the profession, you know? Uh, and, and one of his, his magnum opus was IIT. He designed, I think, 19 buildings on IIT's campus. Robert R. Taylor designed over 30 on Tuskegee's campus. He literally built the campus and designed it. You know, yet we don't have that conversation within the dialogue about what does it mean to be an architect. Um, the use of brick as a material, that was something that was scaled down to meet the needs of the local community. And so for African-American architects to be at a school that addresses the needs of African-Americans from the material, through, through the curriculum, through the course of study, and then the method of instruction, it's a key thing. Um, and that, you know, it actually is what's generally warranted for uh, you know, white population in our country 
for HBCUs, that's that's an opportunity for top opportunity for African Americans to get that same quality of treatment. Okay, so what is what are the what are the roles and is is there is there importance that there is both the HBCU institutions and predominantly or traditionally white college universities that are you know trying to do a better job of having um, you know diversity not just racially but you know across the board what how is it important what is the balance that those two play so I think it's important to to, to realize when we you know the term historically black college or university was attributed to our institutions because our students in mass could not study at other institutions around the country. And mm. not only could we not study um, in mass, in some instances, you couldn't study there at all. So yeah. really, when we look at this, you're talking about institutions that maintain a legacy of excellence that say, you know, if you take Tuskegee, it was founded by a community that said, we want education and this is a space that decided to take up that charge, create an institution to meet the needs of that community and continue to do work. The thing about this is there was never a restriction on who could attend. So when we talk about an HBCU versus say a predominantly white institution, there was never a restriction on our end. You know? So you could say every American has the capacity right, to, sure. to learn and, and has. Whereas at you know, many predominantly white institutions, you can look back in their history prior to the 1960s, many African-Americans could not attend those, those spaces. So when we look at that and say, well, what does that mean? That means that if you look at how long that institution was around, we, let's just say it was around for 100 years prior to that. That's 100 years of knowledge that people weren't able to gain. That's 100 years of legacy that people were not able to be a part of. Uh, that's 100 years of tradition. I mean, our institutions are about traditions, right? Mm -hmm. That's 100 years of traditions, football games, uh, you know, basketball games, you know, that w the rest of society were not allowed to be a part of. Women, in some instances, were not allowed to engage in those spaces. So that means that when you're looking at institutions who said this is what the you know, American system is all about, every man is created equal, we all have the right to enjoy the comforts of this society, then what should really be saying is how do we take charge and learn, take lesson uh, from all those institutions who said, we're gonna buck what the system says about who should gain access and learn how have they provided access and met the needs of communities that other institutions cast to the side. You know, you uh, obviously did your undergrad at Tuskegee. Um, you, you know, graduated, did a few different programs, came back, was a teaching assistant, went and worked in the professional sector, came back, and now are the head of architecture. What keeps bringing you back? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I've asked myself <laughs> that often. Um, you know, Tuskegee, where it's located, it's, you know, you look around and it's, there, there are things on surface that you say, well, why? What I can say in my time in returning is every single time, I literally, I feel like I pick up a new degree. Um, you know, it, in terms of learning, when I come and I find that the people who've done the first in this country, not just first for African-Americans, but have done the first, you know, first African-American female uh, and first woman to earn a, uh, you know, a medal in the Olympics, Amelia Boynton, excuse me, um, uh, 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 Coachman, 
Um, you know, she was in. She was from Tuskegee. You know, you have Amelia Boynton Robinson, who's re, who was considered the the mother of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. Rosa Parks. I mean, we all know Rosa Parks, Tuskegee. When we look at African Americans who've been instrumental to this country, from Malcolm X to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, starting with Booker T. Washington, you know, Frederick Douglass. You know, he was he gave the inaugural speech at Tuskegee, inaugural address. Um, you know, these are not just African Americans, and sometimes we have this tendency to take folks who are actually who are American. You know, they're you know homegrown. Yeah, yeah. They they there is no distinction. Their blood is red, and they they do the work for this country, and we 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 put them in a in a, in a spot that we don't recognize the value that they've contributed. Given the in the the challenges that they faced, anybody else faces those challenges, we're going to put them up on a pedestal. Uh, but you know, so for us and for me, when I every time I come back to Tuskegee, I learn about the contributions that our our program, our community, our university has made to American society. You know, from the mm -hmm. rural school program with with Rosenwald schools, where five thousand schools were built throughout the southeast of the United States making it possible for people in rural communities to gain an education, to, uh, you know, work with Char Dr. Charles Drew. I mean, the list goes on that I, I have to say, I, I'm upset that I have a left. I mean, <laughs> that's an amazing place to be. Uh, and and, and I'm really, I'm just so honored to continue to be here to do the work. So one of the things that you've written about um, has been the, the prejudice that has existed in in design going back decades um and and i think that even today it still exists if even intentionally towards a bias that was rooted then tell me a little bit more about that so you know we can look at just starting with the canons of architecture uh, and i and i spoke about mies van der Rohe and you know by no means is this a slight to his work it's just saying that there's a whole segment of people in this country who have contributed to the development of this country and we don't acknowledge them. So when we say you have somebody like, uh, you know, Robert R. Taylor, who is trained at MIT. So he's coming out of the first program in the country to teach architecture and 30 years mm -hmm. later, he's at Tuskegee applying the skills and knowledge that he learned at MIT to Tuskegee and even acknowledges it, you know, roughly 20 years later at you know, one of their anniversaries about the impact MIT had on the development of Tuskegee as an institution. But we don't acknowledge the significance of designing over 30 buildings to create a campus, you know, a campus where you have African Americans where the word is that they cannot be educated let alone cannot be educated by African-Americans. Yet Tuskegee is proving that the impossible is easy. So mm -hmm. when we don't acknowledge things like that within our country, then we, then we continue to elevate biases that the truth is architecture, historically how we're taught, is that it's for the elite. You have to have money to afford us. Yet when you look at the kind of work that Tuskegee was doing, you were creating the citizen architect capable of going out into any community and address the needs, you know, sustainability before sustainability was a term. And so 
when we look at the, uh, the biases that continue to perpetuate all the way to now, we see how architects, we've had a hard, hard time dealing with social issues within this, this country when it comes to the building, building space. You know, we look at in the interstate highway system. It is all over the country, yet it's rooted in racial fabric. I mean, communities of color, poor communities, they were displaced through the interstate highway system. So we ride on these spaces, we're in these spaces. I mean, and that's just a few. We have gentrification. That is a term that's popping up now all over the place because we're seeing communities of color in urban areas where African-Americans, uh, Puerto Rican-Americans, other Hispanic-Americans are being pushed out of their communities all because they cannot afford to pay for the community that they've grown up in for two, three, four, five generations. I mean, and unfortunately, most of architecture does not have an answer to these solutions. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, those biases. So, and the, the, the biases are not just racial either. I mean, there's, uh, even in the, like we were talking about earlier, in the 2% of architects that are African-American, only a fraction of those are female. Um, so it, it's, it is, it's, it's a widespread issue. <laughs> no, 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 it is, it is. Um, and, and within education, you know, a lot of this begins in education. So when you think about architecture, one of the first barriers to even get into a school of architecture, is you have to have this thing called a portfolio. I know I never heard of a portfolio before I came to Tuskegee. I know most of the students that came to Tuskegee that come now have never heard the term before. That doesn't mean that you don't have the skills. I mean, I did a lot of drawing before I came, you know, before I came to school uh, that I could have easily put a portfolio together if I needed to gain admissions to another program. But we can see these are just small barriers that I, I get accepted to a school, yet I can't enter their architecture program because I don't have a portfolio. I may or may not have the work, but if I don't even get the opportunity, if I don't even get access to the space to prove myself, then it is impossible for me to, for that, those numbers to change. Well, and that's why, at, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, that's why this is something that really starts really even long before architecture school into something that is even potentially before college so that you, if there's an education there and an, and kind of a, um, an awareness of, of what that path looks like and a desire to go down it, it makes it something where um, hopefully it breaks down some of those barriers. No, definitely. You know, programs like Project Pipeline through the National Organization of Minority Architects is one of those pathways. Uh, Tuskegee, we have our PACT program, Preview of Architecture and Construction, um, you know, Careers in Construction. That is there to break down those barriers to expose you to what this career path is. For many students who grow up in communities where uh, there are many challenges, you actually want to see change and have the capacity to facilitate it. You just have to be told what that profession is. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, we also have a lot of people who say that if you are bad at math, that then you shouldn't be architects, um, you know, or you can't do it because you have to be good at math. Uh, that, those aren't, I mean, it's not 100% true. You know, you, 
let you know let folks get in there, prove what their capacities are, and let them make the decision whether or not this is the space they want to play in. You know, certainly um, what what should go hand in hand with diversity is inclusion, and and not just for a numbers sake or not just to be able to say you have this percentage, but because there is a culture and a heritage and a benefit to having the, the, the diversification in opinions and thoughts and motivations and designs. Um, and I'm, I, I just, it, it was kind of res- revelation in talking with you beforehand and kind of doing some of this research that that is something that really transcends numbers and because something becomes something that is um, human centric. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question, you know, by looking at sustainability. You know, sustainability is about diversity, you know, particularly like sustainable agriculture. You know, there's um, uh, the understanding that if you plant just monocultures, you know, monocrops, then if you have pests that come along, they'll wipe out that whole crop without even thinking. You know, one of the perfect examples was the the boll weevil in the South, you know, due mm-hmm. to cotton. Uh, when the boll weevil came through, it was like, it literally was having a field day. You know, it's just like nothing but yeah. cotton around and is wiping it out. And the minute you diversified that crop um, and, and, and I'm, you, you found success. And so you look at somebody like, you know, Dr. Carver, who said, you know, you need to rotate your crop, but you also need to plant peanuts and you need to plant soybean, you need to plant sweet potatoes. In addition to your cotton, that was able to save America. So now let's take that same example and look at what challenges America faces today. If we think that we're going to continue to be a leader in the world by having a monoculture from design, you know, from within architecture and within this creation of space, then we're going to blow the great opportunity we have as a society that recruits the best and the brightest from all over the world. We're no longer in a situation where we can say, you know what, I'm just going to drop a bomb on everybody and prove to them that I'm the world power. You know, they'll drop a mm-hmm. bomb into our, you know, our network and then wipe all of our computer systems out, right? You know, I mean, but I don't think I don't think war is the place that we want to be doing this. You know, I think what we want to be really saying is, wow, just like I love a variety of food, I love a variety of seasons, I love the taste of different cultures and how they prepare their meals. No different than we can appreciate that. How about we do the same in saying, let's look at the quality of people that inhabit this country from indigenous people, from people of African descent, people throughout the African diaspora, from you know, Chinese Americans, from Japanese Americans, you know, from, from the cultures that we can't even pronounce because we don't hear enough about them. You know, from all the immigrants that are coming up from the South who we are now saying you know, they need, need to go defi- despite the fact that this country you know, was built by immigrants, you know, people immigrating or you know, coming from other places, you know, rather than looking and saying, let me find a way to exclude, uh, how about we start looking at ways to be inclusive and saying, how did you learn to deal with these things? You know, you, you let off talking about the challenges that, that people are facing in, in Texas uh, recently because of the weather conditions. Small example, geographic, you know, it's different geographies. I can tell you exactly how you, you keep your pipes from bursting. Yeah. 
turn the water on, let it drip for a little while. You know, you keep that steady flow, your pipe is not bursting. You know, that's diversity, diversity of thought. You know, if you include my, my opinion into how do we deal with this as someone who comes out of the Northeast, then people in, in, in Texas don't run into that, that challenge. So yeah. all we're saying is that as you look at the diversity of people on the planet, who happen to coalesce in this country, acknowledge that they bring value to the table and acknowledge them and give them the, the proper due and credit for that. So I think that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about last, which was your doctoral thesis um, and talking a little bit about the beloved community, which I know, even though it was a Josiah Royce concept, Dr. Martin Luther King really brought that to the forefront and really built on that. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit about what the beloved community is and then how you used it in your thesis. So the beloved community, as, as Dr. King expounded upon, was this, this understanding that there's this belief in what he called agape love. It is this love that says that we are all children of God. You know, we, we have that God force energy inside of us. Every single one of us has that. And so because of that, I love you, you know, because if I love God, then I love the God inside of you and that God force and my God force, we're kin. And so we're going to build around that. And so that means that we need to build communities where we come together. And it's about that sense of inclusion. You know, Dr. King had a, a series of principles, one of which was nonviolence. You know, that was his major take. But that idea of nonviolence is so powerful. And it is not this idea that, you know, you slap me in my face and I turn around and I, you know, I say, ow, and, you know, and, and let you be. It's saying that I'm bold enough to stand in front of you and say, that's not acceptable. And I will do things to make sure you feel as uncomfortable as I felt with the attack but I'm going to do it out of love. I'm going to be the example that I want you to be because I can acknowledge, you know, maybe you don't know what that looks like. And so let me be the example for you so that we can both coalesce. And so the, the idea of the beloved community was actually a concept we were supposed to pick up when Dr. King, you know, passed, you know, when the civil rights movement you know, ended, um, and, you know, we can truly argue that it may, you know, it hasn't ended, but, you know, yeah. at least saying, you know, when Dr. King passed away, we were supposed to pick up that mantle. We were supposed to figure out how do we create the beloved community where we all can coalesce, not what we have right now, which unfortunately continues to be segregated spaces. It's not about segregation. It's about integration. It's about acknowledging the value that people have. And in some instances, you, people may need to go into spaces where they can understand who their best self is. But until we reach that point, we have to keep doing the work. What do you think specifically the role of an architect and a designer is in that? Because obviously you're not talking, when you say we, you're not, you're not talking about African-American, you're talking about humanity, right? You're saying we all have a responsibility to that community. What is the role that regardless of race that an architect or a designer plays in building that community? Uh, to be a listener. You know, as architects, we come in with the belief that we know exactly what people need. 
Mm. We believe our tools have turned us into God. No, all my tool has done is allowed me to answer the question that, that might be on your mind, but I won't know what that question is until you ask it. And I can't find the solution until I listen to hear, hear, hear what your need is. You know, I'll give a, I'll give a, a, a very good example uh, with one of the projects that I initially cut my teeth on, which was the Shiloh Rosenwald School in Notice Alabama. We were asked to come and help this community that was impacted by the uh, syphilis experiment uh, that was done through the United States Public Health Service. This was one of the major hosting sites for men who participated in that study. In addition to it being one of the rural schools that the close to 5,000 rural schools that were built and it was one of the original. So when I walked in the door, I said, I don't know how to help you, you know, but the least I can do is listen. So I spent three sessions and not because I was counting. It's just, that's how long it took me to figure out how to ask a question. After three sessions, I was able to ask a question about what they needed and then be able to kind of go in my toolkit and say, I see that you have a Rosenwald school and their windows are important. You're probably going to need somebody who knows how to restore those windows. And then reached out, found a window restoration expert. We did this massive community based restoration of the windows for eight months where you had universities and administrators and communities and you know, all, everyone is coming together on Saturdays for some of the best hot biscuits and orange juice I ever tasted, you know, <laughs> you know to build community. And now when I look yeah. at where they are, 10 years, you know, roughly 10 years after they got placed on the national registry, you have people coming from all over the world to learn about their community. How did, what was rural education like? What was it like when you were being taught? What was that curriculum like? That was the role that architecture was able to play. And that wasn't all Tuskegee. That was Tuskegee, that was Auburn, that was Middle Tennessee State. You know, all of us played a role in contributing to this community and what they needed in order to grow. And none of us came in and said, you know what, this is what you need. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to tell you how to do it. So I'm, I can imagine that's not a small ask for any of us to listen. We all want to, we all want to use, but as my mom used to tell me, I have one mouth and two ears. So use them in that ratio at the minimum. Um, so certainly it starts with people. What, what are the roles that larger architecture firms and design firms can do to, to buck the status quo and to disrupt and contribute to changing the landscape of access and opportunity and, and allyship? So I think one of the values that large de design firms have is they have the expertise of dealing with large scale problems. They have voice. They can demonstrate how they've been able to transform space, whether it's through you know, master design or campus design. And just as we can take problems and plug them in, at that large scale, we can also go in communities and look at how has that community created itself already before I even came on board? How can I take what you've done and just magnify it? Because I have the resources to magnify what you've done. I don't have to say the person who's paying me is the one who's the authority. I can tell the person who's paying me, let me show you how this work you want done. Let me show you how, how you can do it. You can look at that through, you know, uh, you know, a, a sustainability mindset. 
you know, realizing that, you know, the basic idea around sustainability is that the waste is an input into one system and the output from that system that would create waste is a new input into another system. And so as you get circular economies in a circular process, everyone is benefiting. Unfortunately, what we have is not a sustainable model because we say I'm going to come in and I'm going to create a whole lot of waste from the people that used to be there, they're discarded and are outside the gates. The culture that they used to have, they, we're going to destroy that and, and send that out somewhere else. The resources they used to use, we're going to say, you're not going to use that. You're going to use my new resource that I bring in and your resource has no value. And so if we're going to be honest about this thing called sustainability, we're going to be honest about this thing we call architecture and actually creating that beloved community, then let's come in listening and then tell the community what it is that I heard. Use our imagery to demonstrate to them what we actually heard and let them be the judge of whether or not we've arrived. That is all the work we do all the time before we even break ground. We spend a lot of time yeah. doing a lot of drawing. Let the community truly tell us whether or not they the, the drawings we put together have captured what they believe. So what what is your and I, I I kind of I go back and forth between this being a personal or a professional question, but I think those lines probably blur a fair amount. What do you think? What what is your hope for the next three or four years? Like, what do you what is your hope for the future, um, in terms of how architecture can have an impact in this ability to to see the beloved community come to fruition? I got to be honest. Um, it's a lot like I tell my wife, uh, you know, we have five children, um, you know, it takes nine months to, to give birth. So that's my, nine months of changes that the body goes through. And then there's like, you know, a year, you know, anywhere from like five months to a year that your body is still going through those changes if, you know, if you're breastfeeding. And so that you're really looking at yeah. about a year, you know, two years time that your body is going through massive changes. And all along that time, my wife is like, but my body looks horrible. I, I don't dare take a picture of me. I need to lose this weight, right? <laughs> well, if it took you two years to get here, I believe it's going to take you at least two years to get away from it, right? You know? Yep. Yeah. So, and, and, and I'll say, let's be very, you know, be a little more conservative. Let's say it takes you four years to get there, right? Because things yeah. don't happen overnight. Well, I deem it to be the same way when we're talking about the challenges that we face as a nation. If it took us 200 years to get here, four or five years is way too small of a number to believe it's going to take us, we're going to be able to get it right that fast. We're looking yeah. at generations, but in four or five years, we, as long as we can actually say every day we're taking a step in the direction, then we are going to get there. So. You know, just as I tell my wife, you know, put one foot in front of the other. If we get up and we exercise, if we get up and we just walk, take, let's take time out the equation. But make sure you're actually doing work. Don't take time out the equation and not yeah. do any work. You know, take time out the equation and really make sure that you're doing the work. You're actually saying and being, being uh, definitive with your actions every day to walk a path where, you know, to steal Dr. King's words to create that beloved community. Awesome. Um, all right. Before I let you go, I have to ask you 
one of the very first things I do when I when I'm sitting down preparing, you know what's coming. When I'm preparing to to the research is I, I go look on LinkedIn, and I saw cane twirling on your LinkedIn profile, and and so I I, I went and I, I talked to Halima McWilliams here, and I said you you got to kind of clue me in here on the cane twirling before I talked to Doctor Crazy, and she goes oh well he was a, a Kappa Alpha Psi, and so. They're, the Kappas are kind of the pretty boys, all right? And so if you're a quaint cane twirler and you're a Kappa, you're definitely going to get the girl. You got it going on. <laughs> but but uh, I, I, so I need you to tell me a little bit about cane twirling, and then I've got one other question for you. So, uh, so it's about culture, right? Um, you know, cane twirling is a subculture of, of my fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. And within that subculture, it's a, you know, we have a brotherhood. It's like a brotherhood within a brotherhood. What you find is within this culture, there are traditions that are passed down. There are rhythms that are passed down. There, there, there are um, uh, techniques that are passed down to, you know, from one brother to another. And everyone doesn't take to it. It just happened to be something that I, that I really <laughs> took to. And uh, we wrote, you know, uh, the, the, the person, my co-author, he's uh, what I call my line brother. He, you know, he and I, we came through at the same time. Uh, his name is James Keith. He and I wrote this book because he was this magnificent cane twirler. Um, and there was a, a, a gentleman, David Boyd, who went on YouTube before YouTube was anything. And he was twirling. And, I, and my wife told me about it. And I said, I saw it. I said, oh, man, you got to get on YouTube. You know, no offense to him, but <laughs> you're really, really good. You got to get up there and you got to you got to do your work. So uh, we watched YouTube at that time. This was what, 2003, 2004. Uh, YouTube was not a household name. So we went viral. And, like, you know, we had like 100,000 <laughs> hits over two years. That was viral at that time. That's like nothing these days, you know. <laughs> um, and so roughly, you know, seven years later at our, our centennial, our 100-year celebration of the founding of our fraternity, we decided to write a book to acknowledge all of the men that had come through our fraternity that had picked up and developed this particular technique because we saw that as the Internet was taking over, a lot of stuff would be lost. And so we find it as a great opportunity to educate. You know, so like right now mm -hmm. asking me the question, whether I'm twirling or, or being, you know, being a spokesperson for all the other brothers who do this work, we get to acknowledge the 10 men who founded our institution at Indiana University. You know, we get to acknowledge the community service that we've done around, around the world. Uh, we get to acknowledge our relationship with other members of Black Greek letter organizations, of which you know, one of the most famous ones now is uh, Kamala Harris, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris, who's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So the value of it is that it is really an element that allows us to speak to the world about the contributions that we uh, have made in the past and we continue to make today and into the future. Well, I think that's what, and that's what I, I think is probably a good place to leave it is one of the things that I found really impressive is, you know, when you hear fraternity, you typically just associate it with the period of your life when you're in college, but that's really not true for the Kappas. It's, it's a lifetime of commitment and achievement and service you're 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 a cap of your entire life and that you have that brotherhood and um i think that's what i found really impressive when i was when i was digging in 
Well, it's it's it goes to really what we've we've been talking about, you know, that that diversity of culture. Uh, for for our fraternity and for African Americans, uh, this was a this is a culture. Uh, this is family, you know. So it's unlike you know, it's like all families. It just happens that for us, you know, we wind up extending our family, whether you're you know at an HBCU where you're part of that HBCU family, or you're part of a Black Greek letter organization and you're part of that family. It's a family that continues to do the work. And so it's unlike, you know, friendships. We don't, dis we don't cast our friendships aside because, you know, I'm, well, hopefully we don't, <laughs> you know, because I'm now <laughs> having fun with my life. Um, we realize that these friendships are, are, are lifelong relationships that have the capacity to continue to nurture and pour into us, to ourselves, pour into our children, and pour into our, our, our global community. So I am, uh, I'm honored to be able to say that when we look around the, cult, the, the country and some of the, uh, the stories that we hear, I can be a beacon and I can point to a brother, you know, brotherhoods and sisterhoods that are counter-arguments to, to, to falsehoods that are, are portrayed as, as truths. Uh, because we continue to make these these contributions, um, we're, you know, most of us uh, we're all college educated, and and, and ideally yeah. we all have graduated as well. So, um, no, it's it's, it's <laughs> ideally ideally. <laughs> Sometimes college life becomes more fun than it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Thank you for joining us. If you're listening, if you're watching this uh, video podcast, then you are getting um, a, a good portion of our conversations, but not the whole thing. So make sure you listen to the audio version to get the whole conversation uncut. Thank you for joining us.